Welcome to Empire State Engagements. I'm Dr. Robert Childs. During the Great Migration, a community of African-American migrants from Mississippi were able to reestablish themselves on the outskirts of Albany. Dr. Jennifer Lamack tells the fascinating story of the Rap Road community in her wonderful book, Southern Life, Northern City. I spoke with Dr. Lamack about her research, about her experiences as a UAlbany grad student, and about her ongoing wonderful work as the chief curator of history at the New York State Museum. This is actually the job I went to school for. So when I tell people I have my dream job, I, I'm not lying, I really, I really do. I am so incredibly fortunate to have this job um, that I love. Welcome to Empire State Engagements. I am absolutely ecstatic to be joined today by a longtime colleague and friend of mine, Dr. Jennifer Lamack. Uh, Dr. Lamack is Chief Curator of History at the New York State Museum. She has produced amazing work for the museum, including uh, recently curating the widely celebrated uh, centennial exhibition of uh, women's voting in New York State, uh, Votes for Women, as well as authoring along with Ashley Hopkins Benton, uh, the catalog of the same title. Uh, she has uh, put together other books on behalf of the museum, including among others, uh, An Irrepressible Conflict, which is also an excellent look at New York State uh, in the Civil War years. Currently, she is one third of the editorial troika of uh, New York History Journal, which of course we encourage everyone watching this uh, Absolutely. to subscribe and read. And her first book, which will be the focus of our conversation today is entitled Southern Life, Northern City, which is published by SUNY Press Excelsior Editions, and which I am really excited to talk about today. So welcome, Jennifer. Thanks, Rob. Nice to be here. Well, this story uh, is a story of a really unique, I guess, uh, micro-migration within this broader national phenomenon over many decades of the Great Migration. 
Um, and so uh, I guess starting out, um, how are the experiences of the rap road community um, in, a, in a very broad sense? How do they fit into uh, larger trends in the great migration in, in these years? Um, well, I, they fit in actually perfectly because um, the rap road folks, and we'll get into how and why they, they came to Albany and where they came from, uh, but the Rep Road folks were moved here in a chain migration fashion. And migrants around the country would go to someplace where they knew there were already family and friends established. That was probably the biggest indicator of why somebody would go somewhere um, because they already, they already knew people living there. And it was kind of a, a safe zone, if you will, um, to have that Kind of those comforts of home and have relations and um, so you weren't completely venturing out into a brand new area but because you had kin there um, so that was pretty common um, and you see that in big cities across the north um, in fact in places like chicago and detroit there would be full little communities inside the larger city all from a specific area in the deep south um, and Albany was no different. So the one thing that was different about this migration, because most of the, the migrants came from um, Shibuta, Mississippi and the, the surrounding areas, is that it's difficult to get from Miss Shibuta, Mississippi to Albany. Most migrations would go in a specific north-south pattern. And uh, because Shibuta is a little more west than most of the other migrants who came to Albany, it was unusual. Um, because doing census research, I found that most of the heads of households were from Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina. Um, but Mississippi definitely made an impact on Albany, New York. Absolutely. And it's, and it's such a, a, a rich story that you describe of this interesting connection between Shibuta, Mississippi and Albany, New York. And of course, the, the spark of that connection uh, was this dynamic clergyman we'll meet in a couple of minutes, um, Lewis Parson. Um, and he believed that uh, God had led him to Albany and then he in turn would lead a lot of his uh, fellow Mississippians to Albany. But he, as you point out, was, when he showed up in 1927, coming to a city that already had an African-American population and they weren't mostly, as you point out, Mississippians. So before we start with the Mississippi migration, what was life like in Albany and especially what was African-American life like in Albany in the years when um, Parson and others started arriving? Um, sure. So there was, in the 19th century, there was a small established African-American community here. Um, but then starting with the Great Migration, when um, African-Americans were hired in large numbers for the first time in northern industry, it started to grow. Um, and folks did move to Albany because it was a, a headquarters of the Delaware and Hudson and the New York Central Railroad. So there were jobs available here. There were a few industries, um, Albany Felt and uh, the Tobin Packing Company. And 
the Waterbury Arsenal hired African Americans um, during World War II. And then because of the port of Albany, there was a lot of day work available for recently arrived migrants could go down to the port and get day work. Um, and then as far as women goes, a lot of the women were hired as domestics and um, laundresses. So um, it wasn't a huge community. I don't know, I don't remember the numbers off the top of my head, um, but it definitely increased um, over the 40s, 50s and 60s. And um, of course there are, in any migration story, there are push factors as well as pull factors. You point out the pull factors, generally speaking, um, were uh, potential for work. Uh, although with Rap Road, it's, it's also, as you point out, sort of a chain migration and, and connections. Um, but what were some of the, I mean, we know to, to be rehashing the, the push factors, it's, it's, it's a well-known and terrible story in US history, but I guess a better question would be, how did life in Albany compare to the world that had been left behind for African-Americans as far as education, as far, because you get into this in the book, right? Uh, what kind yeah. of schools were available? What kind of institutions um, did work and so forth? Right, so um, if you go by what the secondary sources say, they will tell you that schools in the North were better. Um, and indeed, African-Americans could make more money per day. I think it was anywhere between $1.50 to $2 a day in Albany versus 50 cents to 75 cents in rural Mississippi. Um, so that alone is better. But when I did oral history interviews, and I did about three dozen, um, everything didn't go the way the secondary sources said. So when I would talk about what well, was education better in Albany, um, yes, you'd get some, well, yes, it was better, but then folks would start to talk about some of the discriminations that happened here in Albany because for the first time they were going to an integrated school. When they were in Mississippi, they went to the black school and therefore there was nobody there to show favoritism to. Um, and so they would talk about coming up to Albany and then they would notice that, you know, all of the awards would go to the white students. Um, and there was this great quote from a woman named Geneva Conway and it was something to the effect of, um, there was discrimination, there's discrimination in the South and I knew it for what it was. But when I went North, it kind of sneaks in on you and you're on, you, it was on me before I knew it. And when she said that it made such sense and it was, yes, there's still discrimination here, but it's kind of painted in a rosy picture sometimes. And then you don't know about it until it really happens. Um, and I think growing up in that community, um, in, in the black community, folks, you, you kind of grow into it um, because the families would all try to shelter their kids as long as possible. And then there would come a time where, well, yep, now you got to learn, learn about the ways of the world. Um, and that's, you know, sad no matter what family you're in. So, um, and then uh, there were other instances of um, folks talking about, um, in fact, I interviewed a couple gentlemen who moved to Albany and hated the weather, absolutely hated it. 
And they said they would just go to work, come home. And it was so cold. They didn't want to leave their apartments. And then spring rolled around and they decided to move back to Mississippi, which shocked me because I'm like, well, everything says that the South is horrible. Why would you ever move back? But, you know, folks still had families down there. Um, so it wasn't, you know, maybe it wasn't so, so bad and, and God knows all many winters are terrible, but, um, you know. Well, they couldn't do anything about the weather, but uh, the African-American community did uh, organize uh, ways of, of sort of trying to improve the situation through uh, civic organizations, civil rights organizations. Um, and you talk a lot about this, I think, especially in, in the second chapter, um, there's the interracial council, there's uh, chapters of uh, national organizations, um, or some important uh, groups or, uh, yeah, important organizations that were able to sort of improve life uh, or fight to improve life. And, and how did they approach that? Yeah, so in Albany, um, I think because it's considered kind of a second tier city, um, a lot of the civil rights organizations throughout the 20th century were mostly interracial. Um, I think you see kind of all, um, all African-American communities in larger cities when there's a big enough black population to support it. But in Albany, you had the interracial um, council, which really helped um, with housing issues and employment issues. One of the big um, issues in Albany was that there was really not a lot of housing stock that was available to African-American migrants um, upon arrival in town. So the areas that most uh, Black families were kind of stuck living in were the South End and Arbor Hill. And the South End was uh, kind of the place where all of the new arrivals throughout the 19th and 20th century would arrive. It was the kind of the, the poorest and least desirable section of town. And um, folks that came here, uh, like Irish and Germans and Jewish, uh, were able to move to the South End, get a job, get established, and then slowly move out of the South End and basically move up Madison Avenue and uptown to nicer apartments and houses in Pine Hills versus the African-Americans who would move here. And then because of discrimination and racism, there was no other place for them to go. So they were kind of stuck in the South End and, and really not able to, to move out and kind of become upwardly mobile like the other groups. Um, and then in the, the 1950s and 1960s, there was, I think like one uh, realty that actually dealt with African-American rental properties. Um, and that was the Albert and Kirsch Realty uh, African-Americans couldn't get a migrant uh, mortgage, so they couldn't go, you know, put a down payment on a house and then move out of the South End. So they were kind of, they were kind of stuck um, downtown. Uh, there were civil rights organizations that sprung up in the 1960s. There was an organization known as the Brothers who worked to kind of um, worked on housing issues for the African-American community. And they also worked to um, get slumlords to kind of hold up their end of the bargain uh, because there was so little housing stock. Um, and the, the folks that owned kind of the, the properties where African-Americans lived 
owned multiple properties and did not take care of anything. So African-Americans paid the highest rents and lived in the worst um, housing stock in the city. So the brothers, that civil rights group really worked to try and eradicate that. Um, and then when the South Mall was built, a lot of those, um, it was known as the gut of Albany, a lot of those houses were destroyed in the, the building of the South Mall. So backing up to the late 1920s, you've got this world where um, African-Americans are escaping the Jim Crow South, but they're arriving in Albany. They might have jobs in industry, but they are crammed into undesirable housing uh, on the South End. And that is the world that Louis W. Parson uh, arrives in in 1927. And he didn't initially set out for Albany, but he ended up there and then he has a plan. Uh, and so yeah. tell me about this fellow. So Lewis Parson was a, uh, a part-time preacher. He was born in, uh, here's another great Mississippi town named Buckatana, Mississippi, um, which was four miles away from Shibuta. And he was a part-time preacher, so, and a rural preacher at that. So he would uh, on different Sundays of the month, go to another different little rural community and preach there. And then the next Sunday, he'd go somewhere else. So he had a, a you know, kind of a following all around Shibuta, Mississippi. And he was a, um, he worked in the, a logging company, which was a fairly large um, industry in Shibuta and in Mississippi. And he was hurt on the job and they gave him uh, insurance settlement. And according to his niece, who I interviewed, uh, he didn't feel comfortable being a black man and having so much money living in Mississippi. So he bought a car with his, some of his money and he and his wife, Frances, decided to move, drive north to, to relocate. And he stopped in Ohio to visit his sister and didn't feel comfortable there. And then he kept coming east. I think he stopped in Buffalo, didn't like it there. And then he came all the way to Albany and in the South End, he came upon a group of women who were holding prayer circles uh, during the week. And the story goes that he felt a kinship with the women and they decided to start, establish a church at 40 Franklin Street in downtown Albany. And that was the establishment of the first church of God in Christ. So he establishes this little storefront church in Albany and because he has an automobile, he starts to drive back and forth between Albany and Shibuta, Mississippi to relocate his congregation members from Mississippi to Albany. And he goes back and forth three or four times. I have kind of lists of who he brought during each trip um, and interviews with some of the folks that actually came here with Parson. Um, and they would try to fill his car up with as many people as possible they tell stories, the folks tell stories about how they would, um, they'd only have like a, an outfit or two to wear, and then they would have to put food and provisions in the trunk because nobody would, they would drive right through. They, Parson would usually pick them up on a Saturday night because it was expected that they would be in church all day Sunday. So nobody would be looking for them on Sunday. Um, and then that would give them enough time to drive 
from Mississippi to get past the Mason-Dixon line where they could then take, um, take advantage of roadside restaurants and, and restrooms and, and whatnot. So I have, you know, great stories of, you know, the trips north and how many people they crammed into the car. Um, and then, you know, their arrival in Albany. So, and then, oh, go ahead. No, I, I love the story, uh, having been a long time uh, driver of a Buick or Sabre, I love the story about putting 17 people in 17 Buick people. at one point. And a baby. It's a remarkable series of basically um, odysseys that he's, he's taking people on. Um, and they establish basically a transplanted Shibuta. And it starts out on the South End, uh, right? Yep. Yep. And they're not happy there for obvious reasons, but also it's not just the housing conditions, is it, that, that trouble them? Uh, life there is. Right. So I, I do want to say that um, everybody that Parson brings, he takes care of. So they all know people when they arrive in town. And the, the new arrivals would always stay with established family members and friends already. And then the church folks would actually help them find jobs um, and help them find clothing and food if they needed it. The, the church um, actually had a little store where you could go and get food if you needed it. Um, so it's, it's actually kind of fantastic how, how much the church takes care of them. Um, and this is always a kind of a point of contention because um, Lewis Parson was issued a summons for bringing folks to Albany um, because the city of Albany felt that, you know, Lewis Parson is just bringing these black people here and they don't have jobs, they have no means of living and we don't want you to do that anymore. And in reality, if you listen to the folks that actually came here, they were all taken care of by family and friends. They might not have had an apartment right away, but they were taken care of, they lived with, um, you know, they lived with whoever they needed to until they could get their own apartment and become established. And then they would in turn do that for another family. Um, and then there were some folks that would uh, not wait for Lewis Parson to bring them. Um, I know there was a couple families that actually came on a Greyhound bus because they had aunts and uncles already established in Albany and they weren't waiting for Parson to come. They were, they were coming on their own. So, um, so those stories are, are, were always fun to listen to as well. You made two really uh, great points that I actually had wanted to, to bring up anyway, so I'm glad you did. The one that it's really, it's a religious institution, but it's this really broad, almost holistic array of social services, especially there, as they're starting to arrive, the depression is taking place. Mm -hmm. And it's remarkable how they really uh, are able to build up. And the other point that, that you just mentioned is that the city resents this and they take notice and they try to stop him. Um, and at one point, I think you say in, in the book, he, he's told that he's supposed to be in court. And this, this dynamo uh, of a community builder says, well, I'm too busy for the judge, right? Uh, yeah. So he so sends, sends his wife to court. And according, you know, according to the oral history, she sits there and worries the whole day, sits in court the whole day, just waiting for that court summons to be called. And then she's he's never called on and then so they just kind of it was probably an empty threat to just kind of say hey let's let's stop this 
but it was in the records that um, he was summoned and just never, never called. So, um, and then you mentioned earlier about the kind of the environment that they were living in the South End. Um, and in the, the 20s, 30s and 40s, the South End of Albany was, was where the, um, the bars were located. There were houses of prostitution, there were gambling halls. Um, and the Rap Road folks were a deeply religious community. Um, and they didn't dance, they didn't smoke, they didn't wear makeup, um, or uh, they actually did wear makeup, they didn't play cards. Um, and they went to church. When I say they went to church, they went to church. They went to church on like Tuesday, Thursday, Friday nights, and all day Sunday. So they were in church a lot. Um, and so this, the area that they lived didn't, you know, a lot of folks, some folks moved, moved back, but um, uh, they didn't, they didn't like the environment and all of the, the vice that was in the South End at the time. And so the solution is to move to what was referred to at the time as Albany's last frontier. Um, right. And so talk about the, the Pine Bush, but, but also this sort of project and this, this remarkable notion of basically creating this community out there on, on the fringes yeah. of the city. So um, Lewis Parson has the idea to move to purchase, he has the opportunity and the idea to purchase land on the very western uh, frontier of Albany. Um, and it's kind of an area, it's, it's an area of, called the Pine Bush, which is a kind of a pine barren um, area with tall pine trees and sandy soil, um, which remarkably is very similar to Shibuta, Mississippi. Um, they had Shibuta, Mississippi in that area, uh, in that area in the Mississippi um, Delta kind of has that sandy soil and pine trees. Um, so Lewis Parson and a fellow church member uh, named Charles Tolliver jointly purchase a 14 acre tract of land out in the middle of the pine bush. Um, and the road that went through it was uh, called Rap Road after an old German family that lived out in the, the pine bush who had pig farms. Um, so Lewis Parson then uh, decides to sell little plots of that land only to church members. Um, and they can, he doesn't take the money. If they, if the family has the money that they can just give it to him right away, he takes that, but he takes the money in installments. Um, and so church members buy little tracts of land, some of them buy bigger tracts of land. Um, and then they start building houses and gardens out there and um, start to kind of create this little community. And um, it's important to note that only church members are offered land. Um, and then within a few years, the um, they just, Parsons' wife and Parsons both buy another 14 acre tract of land. So they've got 28 acres out in the middle of the pine bush, which is completely rural. Um, it's about five miles from downtown Albany. And um, it's a little, probably about a mile to the, the last bus 
So if anybody wants to come to downtown Albany, they either have to have a car or they walk or they have got to walk about a mile to the bus stop and then they can, they can take the bus straight down uh, Western Avenue. But um, some families, uh, one family actually, the, the Woodards had a garden out on Rap Road. They kept their apartment in downtown Albany and then just gardened out on, on Rap Road until they had enough money to, to save up to start building their home. Um, and then slowly homes get built and established and then families move out there and start to you know, live a pretty much a rural life again uh, because there is really no development around the area. Um, and if you were to, and when I keep on saying development right now, um, Rep Road is very close to the thruway. Uh, the University of Albany is right next door. Crossgates Mall is on another side. So um, currently there is a lot of development all around Rep Road, um, but there is a little core set of houses uh, there now. Um, and then there are some other developments around it um, or housing developments around it. But the, um, I think between 1933 and 1963, uh, 23 families built houses and moved out to the Rap Road community. Um, and for the longest time, uh, either nobody cared or nobody realized that this community was even out there uh, because there are, I have some, I've over the years heard some great stories about um, when Washington Avenue Extension first went out in 1971, um, folks, who live out there would tell these stories like cars would see these little houses and they'd be driving through and they were just like jaw dropped open you know what are these black people doing out there <laughs> you know who are these people um and then in the in the newspaper um i think in the late 70s it finally did like their the first um kind of article about this group of black people living in the middle of the pine bush um in, in true 1970 fashion so it's really fascinating, you know, as you're speaking, uh, I hadn't thought about it too much before, but New York State, other parts of the state farther west have a long tradition of having in the 19th century, these sort of perfect communities, these, these utopian communities and not too far from Albany, right? There are Shakers, yeah. which is an example. Yeah. Um, is this in some ways because of it's uh, centered on, on a church on a particularly, um, uh, I think we can say a particularly committed group of, of church members and its isolation, at least for a while. Is this sort of a 20th century version of that? Um, I, I, in a lot of respects, yes. Um, there are stories about how the women who stayed home would have uh, prayer circles every day. Um, and then the kids that weren't quite yet ready to go to school would get stuck being dragged to the prayer circle. <laughs> and um, so they, they all tell stories about kind of the, the different religious um, aspects of, of growing up out there. Um, and then they talk about how um, starting in, maybe in the 50s, they start having a, a Rap Road kind of homecoming reunion every year, um, which is actually fantastic. It's been going on since then. Last year in 2020 was the first Time they did not physically do a reunion in almost 60 years, um, but they did it. They did it, you know, virtually. Um, but 
yeah, I think for a while it was, you know, kind of a, a perfect community, um, at least for them, because it was so rare at that point in time in the 1940s and 50s, and 60s even, that African-Americans in New York State could own land and have a house. Um, that was just almost unheard of in, in most of the, the urban centers. Um, and in a lot of ways, they were able to live a rural life in the city of Albany because they're technically considered, you know, city of Albany, even though they were out in the middle of nowhere. Um, so, so yeah, they, it's a, it's a very special place and it doesn't look like anything you've ever seen before in, in New York state. And not only a rural life uh, in Albany, but also, as the title suggests, a, a Southern life in uh, New York State. Um, you said uh, even before they created the community that the church became the place where its members could somewhat continue their Southern lifestyle while living in the North. And then once they established Rap Road, um, my goodness, it seems as though there's a sort of at times a fusion of their southern culture lifestyles architectural styles with their new northern environment um so talk about uh, how mississippi life um without the things they were trying to flee from mississippi uh how many elements of that really were transplanted up into um well the church was the biggest one um, and their, their church was definitely a, a holiness and Pentecostal church. Um, and it came, you know, lock, stock and barrel from Mississippi, same preacher, just transplanted here. Um, and then the other aspects of their life were, you know, they weren't exactly Southern per se, but they were rural. Um, in Mississippi, everybody, um, families canned all of, they, they grew and they preserved uh, their food, they hunted. Uh, when they moved to the south end of Albany, a lot of the folks were not used to going to the grocery store for everything. Um, and then when they moved back out, when they moved to Rep Road, uh, they could have gardens, they could hunt, they hunt, they hunted turkeys and deer. They had um, pigs and cows out there. Um, if you think about that in the city of Albany, folks actually had livestock um, and they had that actually quite late. Um, really actually way into the 70s they got livestock out there um chickens so um they were able to recreate this this rural existence um and then some of their social customs like homecoming they brought with them uh one of the most fascinating first time i ever heard of the rep road community um the community leader at the time emma dixon was giving a black History Month program at one of the junior high schools. And I went to it and I just remember sitting there thinking like, and she said the word Shibuta. And I remember going like, oh my God, what, what is this? What is that word? What are all these? And, they, and I, I just remember looking around the auditorium. I'm like, what are all these people doing here? This is Albany. It's hard, you know, Mississippi it makes no sense to me. And then they showed a photo, which really kind of blew my mind of full immersion baptisms in the Hudson River. And I was just like, this is different. <laughs> so, um, and it was just very matter of fact, this is the way we do things. Um, and so I have, I'll, you know, I'll share one of those photos with you. 
Um, but it was just a matter of fact, this is how we, we do it. Um, and we do it on the Rensselaer side because that's the shallow side. So, and it was just so matter of fact. Um, and, you know, just seeing that image of the folks getting baptized in the river and I was like, wow, this is something, this is something special. This is something completely different. I need to know more. Um, so, yeah. And if I remember correctly, uh, the church itself remained down in the city. Is that right? And yes. Then, so then all actually got, but, but anyway. Yep. So the, the church was originally located at 40 Franklin Street, and then it moved to 79 Hamilton Street, which was then demolished um, during with the building of the, the South Mall and the Empire State Plaza. Um, and it is currently located at 121 J Street, which is just, I can practically see the, the church from my, my museum window. Um, it, it's right up next to the, the Empire State Plaza. Uh, they moved into an old synagogue, um, which is an absolutely beautiful church. Um, the church is still intact um, and, um, you know, still, they don't celebrate, they don't go to church as much as they used to, but they, they are still there quite a bit. Um, and I should say that there was also, uh, Lewis Parson recruited a successor. Uh, Lewis Parson passes away in, in 1940, I believe. And um, his wife go, goes on to sell many of the tracts of land out on Rap Road. Um, but before he passed away, Lewis Parson recruited a man by the name of Jack Johnson, who ends up purchasing a bus to drive back and forth between Albany and Shibuda and other places in Mississippi to bring migrants up to Albany. Um, so all of the folks who came from Mississippi or who have ties to Mississippi, I would say a majority of them go to Wilborn Temple or Jack Johnson's church, which is still in the South End, but not everybody moved to Rap Road. Um, there were only 23 families that moved out there um, but there are, I would love to know what the actual number of, of folks who live in Albany and are connected are, have, are from Mississippi, um, because there are, there must be thousands. Um, every September, they actually have a Mississippi day in the South End, um, and folks come out of the woodwork from everywhere. And it's, there is really some cosmic connection between Shibuta, Mississippi, and um, Albany, New York. <laughs> it's a really fascinating story because it, it seems that uh, in your book, it comes all the way up uh, to the present. And so it's, it's now generations of people bringing uh, Mississippians and Shibudans uh, in particular to mm -hmm. Albany. Um, Parson has... Uh, Reverend Johnson, and then his son, McKinley Johnson, I think, yep. continues yep. it. Um, and through all this time, uh, for a while, as you point out, Rap Road uh, was sort of shrouded in distance and uh, obscurity, and that was to their benefit. But I, I think you said in, in, in your book that it only comes up once in all of Mayor Corning's papers, yep. and he was mayor for what? 40 years, something like that. Uh, so, uh, so, but, but that was to their advantage, uh, all things considered. Um, but then people started uh, 
eyeing the region for development. You point you, you mentioned a few minutes ago by the early 70s is the Western Avenue extension. Later on, Crossgates Mall. Uh, you've mentioned all the other development in that region. Um, how were they able to weather this sudden uh, unfortunate attention that was being turned on their part of Albany? Yeah, so I, I should say that um, for the longest time, nobody really understood why they were out there. Um, and the rumors around town were, oh, those are just uh, pig farmers out in the pine bush. Or, oh no, Mayor Corning put them out there just to get them out of the city. Like all knowing Mayor Corning. And so the, the woman that I, I started working with, Emma Dixon, said that she started hearing these, these kind of these rumors growing up um, because she grew up on Rep Road. And um, once she moved away, she moved to um, you know downtown a little bit when she was a young adult. And they would say, well, where, are you, where, where did you grow up? And she said, Rep Road. And, and she'd hear these rumors about it. So she was the first one that really wanted to know, like, what, are, what why are we out here? You know, so I give her a lot of credit because she was the one that really started asking those first generation folks, like, well, why did you come here? And what was it like when you moved here? What was it like, you know, building your house from, from scratch? Um, so she was really the first one that, that kind of, Kind of got it going um, and she I give her a lot of credit because when um, there was a plan in the 80s and 90s late 80s and 90s for the the Crossgates mall wanted to double the size of it now and it's a pretty big mall um, but they had a plan to double the size and they started to slowly uh, buy up pieces of land between houses um, and she was convinced that they were gonna just slowly buy everybody out and then connect all the pieces. And um, they were able to get some of the community um, where uh, Washington Avenue extension split the community in half and folks had the choice to either sell their property or move it. And a couple of them actually moved their homes to the, um, the current side of Washington Avenue extension, the, the community side now. Um, and then others sold and moved away. Uh, so there was this plan and there, the thinking was, we're, I would assume on the part of Crossgates that, you know, oh, this, this black community, we could probably buy them out fairly cheaply. Um, but they did, they refused to sell, they refused to move. Um, Emma Dixon and the the, some of the community members would go to the planning meetings. Um, and what's interesting about Rap Road is that they are in the city of Albany, but right next door where Crossgates Mall is, and Crossgates Mall is directly um, right next door, literally. Um, Crossgates Mall is in the city of Gilder, or is in the town of Gilderland. So they would have to go to city of Albany meetings. They have to go to plan, uh, Gilderland town planning meetings and they were always there. Um, and eventually the plans for the double mall, the expansion fell through and they were, they were kind of safe. Um, and I, I entered the, the community's history, I guess, um, 
right around the, the tail end of the Crossgates expansion movement um, because I needed to do uh, a research paper for graduate school. And I worked at the Albany Institute of History and Art at the time. And so I went to the history curator there and I said, you know, I, I have to do a paper on African-American history. Do you have any ideas that something that needs to be researched? And he gave me a list of ideas. And then the last one, he said, well, there's this community out in the pine bush. And he kind of explained it briefly. He's like, but there's not been anything done. And you would have to, you know, do some oral history interviews. And right within like a week or two of me kind of hearing that was when Emma Dixon was giving the Black um, Black History Month talk at the local school, and I just decided to go and listen to it just to just to hear about it. And then after um, listening to her talk about her family's history, I was hooked. Like this is so fascinating. I can't even. This thing is just so unlike anything I've ever experienced. I have to know more. And I went up to Emma at the end of the talk and said, you know, I'm a graduate student. I'm, I would love to do a research paper. And she said, well, you give me a call. I said, okay. So I called her. And at this point, the community was um, very territorial because of all the Crossgates business. Um, and she told me that right up front. She just said, you know, folks are not going to talk to you because of Crossgates or whatever. They don't know you. Um, you're white we don't know you from anything. I said, okay. And she said, come back next week. So I came back and I just kept showing up. And then finally, um, we realized that I need to do a research paper and she would like to get her community on the um, historic registry. And so we both kind of came to the conclusion that both of those things can work for each other. Um, and then once that happened, she, she said, okay. So I would show up at her house. Um, I interviewed her first and then I interviewed her sister. Um, and she was a family of eight. And I interviewed her oldest sister who was born in Mississippi and remembered living there. And then Emma was the last of the eight and she was born here in Albany. Actually, um, and her family still lived in the South End. And then I think she moved to Rap Road when she was like two. Um, so I interviewed both of them and um, I think she realized that I wasn't gonna, you know, run off and go to sell everything to Crossgates or anything. Um, so she would, I would show up at her house where she ran a daycare and we would figure out who to interview. And she would say, okay, well, if you interview this person, they, you know, they came here because of this reason. Um, so I would show up and she would call them up on the phone and she would say, Jennifer's here you're going to talk to him. She's coming over to your house right now and you're going to answer her questions. And we need this because of this. And every time I would show up and we did probably six or seven interviews like that. And then word got out and I did a couple um, church programs and I would go down to the church and, and Emma and I would present together. Um, and it took a long, a long, long time for me to, to keep showing up. And um, it it, I would say it probably took three or four years for me to earn everybody's trust that I wasn't, I wasn't writing a book to make money. You know, if we, if we get all of this down um, on paper and we document everything that happens, that's a good thing because, you know, this is, this is a, this is something special here and we don't want, we want you to be part of the, the, 
historical record. Um, so that took a long time. And, and then once, once I was in it, I had people calling me with stories and, and, you know, whatnot for, and photos. It took me forever to get photos of anything. Um, and then finally it kind of dawned on us after Emma, Emma and I both would ask for photos constantly. And then it kind of dawned on us that and she goes, you know, I don't think anybody had a camera out here. <laughs> I was like, you're right. <laughs> so, I mean, having a camera was a big deal and nobody really had a camera until like 1955. Otherwise everything, every other photos that we had were all um, professional photos. So it was hard until 1955, I think is the earliest um, photos we've uncovered from Rap Road. So, and I feel like I'm all over the place now. No, I love it. I, I think it's a, such a fascinating story. First of all, uh, Emma Dixon uh, herself is, is sort of, if, if Lewis Parson is the, the dynamic force behind creating this community. It's she who first uh, is able to help it endure and then help it, as, as you point out, become um, historically recognized and, yeah. and eventually. Absolutely. Like, and then also just the, the absolute uh, serendipity of uh, being a, a graduate student looking for a project and yeah. meeting this woman uh, who is working on a history project of her own, of her community. And um, what must that have been like uh, as, a, as a grad student? Uh, I mean, to end up being plunged into the mi middle of this not only rich, untapped historical story, but also this important, I would say, uh, social justice initiative. Yeah. Um, at the time, I, I think about that often because I wonder if I would be able to, I would hope that I would be able to do it again. But I think one of the reasons why it worked so well was um, because I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> and I know I probably shouldn't say that. Um, I need to be a little more academic than that. But not at all. <laughs> honestly, I, w I remember, you know, showing up with Ed to visit Emma. And I would say, you know, we really have to go look at these deeds. We got to go, we got to look at, we got to do a deed research. And she was like, well, how do we do that? Where do we go? And I'm like, I think we go downtown to city hall. And so I was like, well, do you want to come with me? She's like, yeah. So I'm like, I don't know what we're doing, but come with me. So we would do the research together, which was so much better because then I could sit there and say, well, who's this person? And she would know who it was. And so we both learned from each other and, um, I think if I were kind of a, a slick, established historian who knew exactly what I was doing, I, I might have been a little off-putting. And because of that, I could see them not wanting to talk to me and open, open up as much as they did. Um, so I think it was, let's learn this together. And it, it ended up working. Um, and we actually had the opportunity. I won an um, Initiatives for Women research grant from the University of Albany and was able to go do research with Emma. I, I took, because I had so much grant money, um, was able to take Emma and her oldest sister, Gurley. And we went down to Shibuta, Mississippi and did interviews and did some research. Um, and then I think once we did that trip together, it was like, oh, you got to meet Jennifer. She's been to Shibuta. <laughs> so, um, so it worked out. So I think 
I think a lot of it was probably personality. Um, and they are just lovely, lovely people. So. Well, what is it like as a young historian to sort of see the reality of where people you're writing about had been obviously out in Raff Road, but also going to Shibuda, I presume seeing the, the red well, uh, yeah. seeing what life was like. There's a certain it was so richness, much fun. Right? <laughs> it really was fascinating. Um, and it took a little while because I was used to doing um, research here and newspaper and, and records and document research here in Albany. Um, and then I went and did research in Shibuda and then I realized like there is this whole half of the population that's not being reported on. And it took me a few days to realize like, wait a minute, what's going on, why? Because if you just look at the newspaper, you would not know that any black people lived in town. Hmm. Um, so that took a little, a little kind of adjustment. Um, but then as I started talking to folks, you kind of realize like, oh yeah, there's this whole other history, but you have to kind of talk to people to understand and, and to actually learn what it is. So, so that was kind of, eye-opening for me coming from, I mean, I, I was born in New York State, um, so that was completely different. Um, and this eventually became not only a, a fine book, uh, but also this work contributed to a museum exhibition, is that right? Yep, yep, we did a couple exhibitions, um, and I, I learned a lot about um, community history. So we did a, our first exhibit was at the um, Tenbrook Mansion, which is also the um, Albany County Historical Society. And uh, we had a nice display. It was part of a kind of a community history. It was it was one little section in a bunch of different neighborhood type things with Albany. And folks from Rep Road came and they looked, they came to the, the exhibition and then it was after the exhibit was mounted, somebody said, oh, well, I have this and I have this hat and I've got this and that. And so because of that, they realized like once they saw their history on display, it made sense. And it was probably because I didn't, didn't know what I was doing. And I probably didn't ask the right questions when I say, well, what artifacts do you have? If you came to me and said that, even though I'm a curator, I'd be like, well, what do you mean? I don't have any artifacts. <laughs> So, but once they saw things on display, they understood then what I, what I really was looking for. Um, and during, I did a fellowship here at the, the State Museum and to, to write my dissertation on Ramp Road. And at the tail end of that, we did a exhibition and, and that one went a lot smoother because um, I knew what I was doing a little bit more, but the, the community also was much more forthcoming with artifacts just because we all understood at that point what, what I was looking for, so. That's a remarkable story of, of getting buy-in, which was absolutely necessary from a absolutely. community and so insular and then besieged by outsiders. And, and so um, your work as this you know, enterprising brand new historian, is, is, it's, it's a remarkable part of this story. Um, in, in, my, in, in my view, as someone reading and appreciating the work now, um, and ultimately it was your dissertation and then became the book. Uh, the book, and I, I still work with the Rep Road. Um, they now have a, a Rep Road Historical Society, um, which is great. And uh, 
they asked me if I could serve on the board. And unfortunately, I can't because of my my current position. But um, if anybody from Rep Road calls me, they are they know that I will, you know, they are I, I love them. So they are stuck with me for a very long time. It's <laughs> a wonderful uh, connection. Um, a question I like to ask guests uh, about the history that they uh, are studying and, and have studied is, is if people watching this are traveling in, in New York State, if they're traveling in Albany and, and they wanted to experience this in some way, obviously you don't want people just wandering around somebody's neighborhood. So um, how could people in a, in a public history sense Obviously, uh, the best answer is probably read the book, uh, but could they go to the church? Like, where would you visit if you were in Albany and you wanted to uh, understand? You can actually drive through Rep Road. Um, I wouldn't suggest uh, walking through Rep Road just because it is it is a cutover from two major um, roadways in, in Albany, and it is quite developed around it. Um, but they have a historical marker on, on Rep Road now. Um, it was designated both on the state and national registry in, in 2003, um, which is kind of special. Uh, but you can, if you drive through it, it there is a different feeling. Um, the houses don't look the same as the other ones in Albany. Um, and you can kind of see the ghosts of the rural area around. Um, and it's, it's a, a special place. So if you're ever in Albany, I suggest you Google Rep Road and then and then drive through the, the community because it's it's a, it's it's special. Absolutely. Um, this came out of your dissertation and it's a sort of extraordinary uh, contribution. Um, what kind of advice would you give, uh, since this is coming from your sort of grad school, starting at least in your grad school years, um, not every grad student is, is going to be able to, to uh, affect uh, state historical policy and uh, help uh, elevate such a story, but um, to those who are interested in engaging with oral history, engaging with uh, community histories, of, of, with people who are still um, trying to get their communities recognized. Uh, what, what sort of advice growing out of your experiences could you offer? Um, I would say be earnest and uh, be nice. I mean, being nice and polite goes such a long way. Um, and I mean, and there were folks that, that didn't want to talk to me, um, but I kept showing up and eventually they did. Um, for, for whatever reason. Um, but I honestly, I think if you, if you're, if your intent is good and it's for the documentation, if you think about the history and you're there to, to help document and get whoever on the historical record, that is, you know, that's, that's a great thing. Um, it's a nice thing. And, you know, I, I think my best advice is to be, you know, to be polite and, um, you know, don't do it for reasons of becoming famous. You know, keep keep in mind what the keep in mind your intent. Um, I think is the best it's the best course of action. That's wonderful. And, and it does, and it oh. takes time. I mean, that's 
it's not a quick, you don't get in and get out. You, it, it, it took me years. Um, and I, I still am kind of collect, I still collect their, the history. Um, so. It's, it's a wonderful story. And as I said, an important and very rich contribution uh, for which I'm, I'm grateful. And when we're finally all back together again, I hope you'll sign this for me. Absolutely. <laughs> um, I want to ask, so now, uh, many years later, you are the chief curator of history at the New York State Museum. And at the time of this recording, uh, we're still in a global pandemic and your institution and many others are facing, um, as well as you not open to the public, but, but facing all sorts of other challenges. I'm wondering what kind of effect this has had on the work very important work, which everyone has heard me talk about a lot of the museum. Yeah, so the work uh, of the museum still goes on, even though we're not open. Um, people are still donating collections. We're still doing research um, in, from, the, from the places we can do research. Um, a lot of it has kind of shifted to sources we can get online at the moment. Um, and you know, we've kind of, we've used, we've been almost closed a year now, it's hard to believe, but uh, we've used the opportunity of being closed to kind of clean up the, the exhibit floor. Uh, so things have been painted and labels have been replaced. Um, we've actually installed a couple murals, actually two, three different murals. Um, so new, so when the museum does reopen, there will be some, some new features on the floor. Uh, which is nice. So, um, but the work always continues. We have over 5 million history artifacts um, in the collection. So there is always a backlog of, of things to do. Um, and I've been, you know, so thankful that I've been able to, to come to work through most of this pandemic. Um, it's been, it's been a nice respite from working from home. I'd, I'd rather work at the museum. So, um, and it's not, um, this is actually the job I went to school for. So when I tell people I have my dream job, I, I'm not lying. I really, I really do. I am so incredibly fortunate to have this job, um, that I love. And every morning I walk into the building, and I'm in the main lobby and I'm just like, I can't believe I have this job. <laughs> well, um, I, fortunate I think Anybody who's been there, I think, will, will join me in, in being thankful that you do, because every time I, I visited, which has been dozens of times, it, it's just a fantastic institution. And, and I, that, that makes me a little bit curious about uh, what might be next. Uh, what, what are you working on research-wise? And, and, and uh, so I have been um, kind of doing initial research um, on uh, Mark Twain in Elmira, or Samuel Clemens. Um, and I grew up in Elmira, New York. And uh, he, his in-laws were all from Elmira, uh, the Langdons. And in thinking about the Langdon family and uh, kind of the effect the Langdons had on Mark Twain, um, I, uh, you know, and this is all pre-research, it's kind of just initial uh, thoughts from kind of knowing different players from the, knowing the local history. Um, but I would 
posit that the Langdons had, because they were a, a reformist family and an abolitionist family, uh, that they probably had a, a bigger impact on Mark Twain and his writing than other places would like to give Almire credit for. So, um, I mean, New York State in the 19th century was, you know, a leader of reform movements. And Elmira is kind of in central, it's in the Southern tier and not too far from where a lot of these, you know, huge reform movements were happening, abolition, um, education reform. Um, Elmira College was the first college in the nation to offer uh, uh, a, a curriculum equal to that of men. Um, so Elmira in the 19th century was very forward thinking. Um, so I, would like to research kind of that progressive effect on, on Mark Twain. Um, and he wrote many of his, his books at the Langdon family home that the, the Mark Twain and his family would come to Elmira every summer. And um, Mark Twain's uh, sister-in-law built him a study for him to go and write and smoke his cigars away from the house and the kids. <laughs> Um, so he wrote for 20 years, and some of his 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 best work was written in the summers at, at Elmira. Um, so so that's what I'm hoping to do. We'll see. It it might come to an article. I hope it comes to an article in a in the New York History Journal, um, in a possible exhibit. Um, I think it would make an interesting exhibit here at the museum because Twain lived in Buffalo as well. Um, he did a lot of things in the Adirondacks, and then there's the whole publishing aspect of it in New York City, as well as Elmira. So we could, we could get in a full state story. Um, and, you know, Mark Twain is one of the, the big ones. Absolutely. So. Connecticut's been hogging him long enough. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, to me, uh, I guess this isn't very academic. Uh, but whenever I think of, I didn't know you were from Elmira, first of all. Mm -hmm. So that's exciting. I, there used to be a foundry somewhere in Elmira that made uh, fire hydrants, among other things. And so, American La France. <laughs> well, on the on the way into uh, my daughter's elementary school, we'd pass a fire hydrant that said Elmira, New York, on it. And if she was having a, a if she was feeling blue, uh, I would invoke the only Elmira reference I knew, which is <laughs> the line in "It's a Wonderful Life." when the yeah. bank examiner is getting irritated <laughs> and he looks grumpily at Jimmy Stewart and he says, I want to spend Christmas in Elmira with my family. Yeah. And so I would do that and Sarah would smile and then we'd go off. So yes, I know that's the not as erudite an Elmira <laughs> connection as Mark Twain's or yours, but uh, yeah. Well, when, I I, do. <laughs> when I first started here, the um, one of the other curators, Jeff Stein, um, who worked here for almost 50 years, was also from Elmira. So I, we joked that, you know, like 30% of the curatorial staff is from Elmira, New York. <laughs> it's, it's had a great influence on a, on a great yeah. institution. Uh, well, Jennifer, I'm so glad that you joined us today on Empire. Well, thank you very much. And uh, when Mark Twain or anything else is ready for uh, more detail, I'd love for you to come back and talk with us again. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thanks, Rob.